are working through the second chapter this morning in a series that we are calling Simply Lament. And it is a series that is covering the book of Lamentations. You know, when I was a little kid, very, very small child, uh, I remember vividly one of the moments where I had to go to the street clinic in order to get a shot. It was a traumatizing moment. It was a scary moment, as, as it is for most kids. And, and I remember being mortified by it. And, it, and I was in the, in the room where the nurse would give the shot, and, and I was rebelling, and I was pushing, and I was clutching, and I was clawing. My father had taken me uh, to get this shot. And my father said a lot of things in the midst of that moment, there was, there was some things that I missed. There were some things that I can't quite remember. But it seems that there was one thing that I did remember, and it was this. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't verbatim, but it, but it was along these lines. A little pain for a little while now to avoid a lot of pain for a long while later. A little pain for a little while now to avoid a lot of pain for a long while later. I, bolst, I, I mustered up the courage, and, 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 I, and I got that shot after I heard my father give me those words. He gave me the courage to, to get that shot. No, actually, that's not what happened. Actually, what happened was I got the shot. I cried like a maniac, and I ran out of the street clinic, and my father had to come and actually find me because I had ran completely out of the street clinic. But nevertheless, the words still are important. A little pain for a little while to avoid a lot of pain for a long while. In Lamentations 2, we find that God is actively involved in giving his people a little pain for a little while to avoid a lot of pain for a long while. This little pain is called judgment. God is judging his people. My first point is just simply, is simply that, is that God judges. From the very beginning of chapter 2, we see that Jeremiah is clear-eyed in his assessment of who has dealt Jerusalem this punishing blow. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Like the first or like the last chapter, this chapter begins with a, with a Hebrew word, eka, the word how. In other words, how in the world has my city been brought down to these levels? In this chapter, there is maybe another question that has arisen, another how. How on earth could we turn our backs on God and in return have to watch as he turns his wrath towards us? And make no mistake about it, it is his wrath that Israel is facing. Yes, the Babylonians have come and they have taken Israel captive, so they are the vehicles for that wrath. They are the sword that God is wielding to deal out the punishment to his people for their disobedience. But Jeremiah cuts out the middleman in this poem and instead turns his attention directly to the source. Lamentation shows us that God will judge, that God judges. All throughout Lamentations 2, we hear of a God who is active in the judgment of his own people. Listen, in verse 1, it says, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion 
under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdom and his rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around and on and on and on it continues. He, the Lord, his wrath is what we hear over and over and over again. All throughout these verses, we hear of a God who is actively involved in judging his people. There are multiple layers to God's judgment in this text when we read through it. For example, God judges her politically. God judges Lady Zion politically. Her might and her power and her reputation as a nation has been totally eradicated. You hear of the strongholds of the city that have been destroyed. You hear of the gates of the city that have sunk into the ground. You hear of her bars that have been ruined and have been broken. Her kingdom and her rulers in the kingdom have been brought down to the ground. Her might has been cut down in fierce anger. She has been destroyed as a nation. She has been, her political power and prestige and reputation has been completely and totally abolished, but not only has she been judged politically, God judges her socioeconomically as well. When you look at verse 11 through 13, for example, you hear this, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. This appears to be either the prophet or possibly another inhabitant of the city who is documenting this mentally and taking all of this in as, and, and describing this depressing scene of babies and mothers literally starving to death together. It's been said that the original Hebrew text for infants here is intended to indicate nursing children. The picture here is nursing babies who are seeking food from mothers who no longer have food to give because the city in judgment has been emptied of all of its resources. There's one more thing to see here is God judges her politically and God judges her socioeconomically, but, but God judges her spiritually. The fall described in Lamentations chapter 2 is significant, not simply in terms of politics and socioeconomics, but also in terms of spiritual life and vitality. Look, in verse, uh, look at verse 6 with me. It says, he has laid waste his booth like a garden laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned, has spurned king and priests. The Lord has scorned his altar, 
disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palace. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The Lord has destroyed the meeting place in the city designated for him. The Lord has laid waste to the practices of festivals and the Sabbaths. He has rejected the leaders. He has disowned the sanctuary and the altar. The prophets no longer see visions and thus have lost the ability to speak prophetically to the people. The symbols of worship have been lost because the worshipers themselves are lost. And now instead of God tolerating inauthentic worship from a people who have lost their way, he has just simply taken the symbols from them. Even in this moment that we're in, if I'm, really, I'm, if I'm really honest, I sometimes can't help but wonder if, in some instances, of course not all, but in some cases, are the symbols of worship that have been taken from us, have they been taken from us because for many there was no worship any longer to begin with? You see, we have the symbol of a Sunday gathering that has been taken from us. But I can't help but wonder in some cases if that symbol of Sunday gathering has been taken from us because there was no genuine substance to go with that actual symbol. You see, here's what I'm praying lately. I'm praying that not just for our church, but for the church, the global, universal church. I am praying in this season that the absence of these means of grace, the gathering, the assembly, the ecclesia, the meeting of the people together in one place, routinely singing with one voice, praying on one accord, that that would ignite a desire in us to hold it tighter. The absence of it would ignite a desire in us to hold it tighter when it returns, that the absence of it would bring about, uh, would bring, would fuel us with the substance of thanksgiving and the substance of passion for Jesus Christ and the substance of a bona fide love for neighbor. I'm praying that as a, as a result of the absence of it, the absence of the symbol, that the substance will be all the more present in us. You know, another thing we learn in the destruction of the temple regarding the spiritual loss and the destruction of the other religious symbols here is that God doesn't need it to be glorified. For Israel, the temple not only was a symbol of worship, but it was also a symbol of status. You see, the one true God dwelled in their residence, but instead of being subject to, to him, it almost appears that they took on a posture that he was subject to them. It's almost as if they were saying, we live how we want to live, but we have the temple and we, we have the priest and we have the festivals and we, we, and, and, and we still have him because we have the temple, we have the priest, we have the festival, so thus we have him. But with God laying waste to all of that, a point is being made. I don't need the temple to be exalted. 
I don't need the festivals to be exalted. If those things are used to boast in you rather than boast in me, then I'll lay waste to them. You know, if I'm honest again, I see similarities in the American church. Oftentimes our eyes move to and fro, observing with disdain all the other traditions, the church traditions around us, as we pay our own selves compliments for having the right worship. Never mind whether this right worship leads to bona fide obedience, and never mind whether these right events lead to a genuine love of neighbor and sacrifice for others, and never mind if these right teachers and pastors inspire us to adopt an understanding of the Bible that is fueled with humility and gratefulness to God and love for Christ and compassion for, for neighbor. Never mind any of that. We think to ourselves that because we have the right ways and the right methods and the right teaching, God is required to be present with us. Brothers and sisters, he is not. If all of our right approach, if the only thing it does is pump our ego, then it is time to reevaluate it before the Lord evaluates it for us. Speaking of ego, you see the crushing of ego all throughout Lamentations, the, this humbling on display. Listen to the language in the poem in chapter 2. Verse 1, it says that God cast them down from heaven. Verse 2, it says that their strongholds were broken down and brought down to the ground. In verse 3, we hear that they are cut down in fierce anger. In verse 5, we hear that that their palaces are swallowed up and that their strongholds are laid in ruins. All of this is meant to highlight not just a fall of a nation, but a great fall of what was once a great nation. You see, great prominence with great pride produces great falls. Great prominence with great pride produces great falls. And so in this text, we see God actively judging his people. We see God actively participating literally in the unraveling of the political, socioeconomic, and spiritual power of his people. God is judging. God judges. And so God judges his people, but God judges his people, listen, for the good of his people. God judges his people for the good of his people. Now, as we reflect on this point, I want to turn your attention a moment to the New Testament because often we we think of God's hand of judgment as an Old Testament outdated action. But what we discover if if we take a survey of both old and new is we discover that judgment, while uncomfortable, is a tool of God's sanctification and has always been and will always be. Matthew 18 tells the parable of an unforgiving servant, for example, that faces judgment because he refused to display the same forgiveness to another servant that he had been given by his master. Acts 13, we hear of a Jewish false prophet, magician, that is stricken with blindness because he opposes the work of God happening in his apostles. 1 Corinthians, we hear of a young man who is who is. Um, who the church is told and instructed to deliver to Satan, to, 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 to basically ban him from the gathering. Why? Because he was unrepentant in his sexual sin 
and sexual promiscuity with his stepmother. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are warned that not, that not properly considering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus during the partaking of the Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine had caused many people to be stricken with illness and had caused some people to even be stricken with death. With Paul saying, Paul said this in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says this, they were judged this way in order that they may not be judged with the rest of the world. Of course, he's speaking of eternal damnation there. And even in Hebrews chapter 12, we hear these words quoted. Chapter 12, verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline is not an Old Testament thing. Discipline is not a, a, a New Testament thing. Discipline is a Bible thing. Discipline is a sanctification thing. The Lord uses discipline to mold us into the people of God that he has destined for us to be. If you're like me, there is nothing more irritating or aggravating in a store or in, a, in an airport or anywhere for that matter, than an undisciplined child. A child that you know needs a good talking to. A child that you know needs for somebody to come in and say, sit your behind down. And yet there is nothing said to the child and they are left to wreak havoc in whatever place that they happen to be. They're left to cause ruckuses. They're left to shout and cry and, cry and, 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 and holler and hit and slap and do whatever they want to do with no discipline whatsoever. There is nothing more irritating to you than an undisciplined child. And yet, for some reason, we believe that for God to discipline us is a bad thing. You see, Lamentations is not only about the destruction of a city, it is about the disciplining of a people. Sometimes there is a tendency to separate the two, but if we, if we do, we run the risk of never learning the lessons that were intended to be learned in the midst of our sufferings. There are times that we fight to restore a thing without asking the question, why is that particular thing dying? We oftentimes simply don't do enough inventory as it, as it relates to relationships or as it relates to what's going on in our churches or as it, as it relates to what's going on in our nations or what's going on in our movements or what's going on in our careers. We don't do the inventory often to ask if the Lord is actively judging us as a way of turning us and turning our attention back towards him. Now, we don't always end up with answers like this, for example. In other, words, in other words, some of our suffering is not coming as a condition of our, our judgment. You know, for example, see Job. Oftentimes, our suffering is not given with clear explanation, like in Job's case. Oftentimes, our suffering is given with an explanation that is intended for us to, to, to share in the sufferings with Christ for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul and the apostles. 
But we must do the work nonetheless to understand why. Because sometimes our suffering is because of us. Lamenting requires that we do that type of inventory. And Lamentations shows us that oftentimes when we do that type of inventory, we find out that indeed God is opposing us in order to rescue us from us. How many times have you been in a relationship that needed to end? How many times have you been involved in sin that needed to stop? How many times have the churches in this country alone been kind of coasting along in this kind of half-woke, half-sleep journey and needed to be awakened? How many of us have placed too much attention on money and possessions and career advancement at the cost of taking our focus and attention away from Jesus and need to be jarred and shaken back to reality? Sometimes God's judgment and God's opposition towards us is set in order to rescue us from us. So don't ignore the judgment. Observe and evaluate and question and ask, why is it here? Why are we experiencing what we're experiencing? Could it be for lack of forgiveness? Could it be for deceitful greed? Could it be for taking the Lord's Supper lightly? Could it be for egregious and unrepentant sexual sin? Could it be for a number of different things? Or in Lamentations chapter 2, could it be a nation has chosen to reject its God over and over and over and over again? And thus, God responds with judgment. God's judgment also of his people should produce empathy from his people for his people. You know, sometimes when we see suffering in our actual lives, like what we're reading about in Lamentations, there is an artificial distance that exists between where we are and where the suffering actually exists. The people describing the hurt here are sometimes too far removed from the hurt, or rather the people, not here, but the people describing the hurt in general in our lives are sometimes too far removed from the hurt to feel anything significant as they describe it. But such is not the case for this poet. Verse 11, he says, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the, because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Did you hear that? Weeping to the point of exhaustion, vomiting, stomach aches. Have you ever experienced those moments of deep despair that literally leave you nauseous? And aching. Have you ever been so deeply disturbed about the suffering around you that it leads you to actual physical pain inside of you? Lamentations 2 shows us a suffering beyond the abstract. This is not Jeremiah looking from an ivory tower. This is Jeremiah looking up close and personal at the suffering of his own. This is not a city he is theorizing about. This is a city that is his own. Lament is born from up close and personal encounters with suffering. The closer we are to the horror, the deeper our cries become. We can't lament what we don't truly feel. 
In fact, there are many unseen disadvantages to comfort and privilege, but one of the biggest disadvantages uh, of too much comfort and too much privilege and too much distance from suffering is that we are left with the inability to lament, the inability to truly feel the suffering around us and cry out with prayers to God and tears of compassion and active hands and feet to address the hurt around us. We theorize it, but we don't feel it because we're too far removed from it. I share this only with, I, 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 share, I share this because th this is why we are diving so deeply into this subject. One of the biggest reasons we felt led by the Spirit to spend some time in Lamentations is because of the suffering that is happening around us and the fear that too many of us in the church aren't feeling it. Too many in the American church, too many in the church united aren't feeling the weight of it. Think about it. Around this time in February, this country had seen no deaths due to this virus. Around this time in March, this country had seen little, uh, a little under 1,000 deaths due to this virus. Now, this country has seen 55,000 deaths due to this virus. Globally, it took 90 days for us to get from zero to 100,000 deaths due to this virus. But we reached the second 100,000. We are now over 200,000, and we got there from 100,000 to 200,000 in 14 days. Zero to 100, 90. 100 to 200, 14. I don't say that to try and strike fear in any of us. I say that to stir lament in us. Because what the church must be, if we are anything else, is a people who will rejoice with those who will rejoice, but will collectively weep with those who weep. We must move from simply theorizing to empathizing. We must feel, because if we don't feel, we won't actually lament. And if we don't feel, we won't cry out to God. We have to be a people that will weep because in weeping we cry and in crying we cry out to the God who responds. Lastly, God's judgment of his people should produce repentance. The people as they are facing their judgment do the only reasonable thing they can. They turn to the judge and plead for mercy. Verse 17 explains that the Lord has them precisely where he wants them. The Lord has done what he has proposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you, exalted the might of your foes. This moment of humbling, this moment of humility was according to his sovereign purposes, not to crush them, but to bring them to what we hear in verse 18. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, 
at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. This crushing of this great nation, this capturing by their enemies, this humiliation has brought about the needed response. God has placed them right where he wants them, and now they finally begin to respond as they always should have. Lord, look at us, they say in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see. Now the needed response is coming forward. God, hear us. God, look at us. God, we need you to respond. You know, sometimes the suffering comes, the judgment comes as an opportunity to right the ship. Sometimes the, the judgment comes as an opportunity to plead with the one who we've been avoiding, to ask for mercy, to ask for his ear, to ask for his gaze, to ask for his hand, to ask for his rescue. And here's the assurance that we have, is that when we come to our senses and when we plead for mercy, we have a God who will always respond. He will always respond when you plead. We see this no clearer than in his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have the assurance that God will judge. Because God sends his only son to take judgment because judgment is a requirement for sin. And so he places his son in our place to, to, to be the propitiation, to be the substitutionary atonement for our sin, to absorb the blow of sin. But in Christ, we also not only have the assurance that God will judge, we have the assurance that God will lavishly give grace to those who cry out for mercy. Because in that, he sends his only son. And if he sends his only son, then certainly he intends on saving to the uttermost whoever would lay their lives upon that son, whoever would trust that son with their life, whoever would have faith in that only son. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all Things. He did not spare his own son. He gave his own son in order that those who cry out for mercy may receive mercy in abundance. And so some of you have experienced the pain of sin. But that pain is only meant to lead you back to Jesus. That pain is only intended to drive you back to the one who absorbed all the pain on your behalf. And some of us are experiencing pain because, in fact, God is sanctifying us. He is chastising those whom he loves because he desires that we be conformed more and more into the image of, this, of his only son, the one who 
died on your behalf. And so, yes, there are times that we receive pricks. There are times that we receive stings. But those pricks, those stings are little pains for a little while in order that we might never have to experience the lot of pain for a long while. Those pricks are intended to draw us back to God. And so should those pricks come in our lives, may we go. May we go. Let's pray. God, we love you so much, and we ask that you would hear our cries this morning. Father, if there be some, Lord God, who are facing blows, and those blows come as a result of sin, Lord, we pray that on this morning their eyes would be awakened to the hope that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would see Christ Jesus, and they would see his sacrifice, and they would embrace it, that they would turn from their sin and turn to him. Father, if there be any among us, Lord God, who are facing battles with our own sin and, Lord God, facing consequences as a result of that sin, Father, we pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be awakened to what you're trying to do, Lord, the sanctifying work, and that, Lord God, we would turn our focus and turn our attention back to you. Lord, we desire you. And so we call on you, Lord God. See us. Hear us. We need you, God. And we love you. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. Amen. Amen.